prebiotics, basically food for the good bacteria, as well as combined uh, pathogenic organisms, some of those. Probiotics are the good bacteria. And these are names that we hear like lactobacillus and bacillus. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. Natural Biologics is using cutting-edge science to dig deeper into the poultry health challenges you face. By gathering scientific evidence, they identify the most effective combinations of natural ingredients that improve animal health. Visit naturalbiologics.com poultry to see the newest research in both turkeys and chickens. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. I'm your host, Karen Grogan, and joining me today is Dr. Teresa Laverne with Natural Biologics. Um, Teresa is a nutritionist by trade and uh, spent uh, many years on the faculty at uh, Louisiana State University and her work there in extension. Um, so maybe we'll touch on that. But in her current role, she helps support a number of uh, products that help support the uh, microbiome of the chicken. So we're gonna focus on that as our topic today. So welcome to to the show, Teresa. Well, thank you very much. Good morning. Whatever time, I guess it's morning when we're recording. It is still morning when we're (laughs) recording, but people will listen to us probably all hours. I, I, I've talked to several colleagues and they're like, oh, I listen to you when I'm driving. You know, they're driving for wherever they're going for the day for, for whatever. So I, I think a lot of people listen to us in the car. So no telling what time. Thanks to everybody who's going to listen or who will listen no matter what time it is. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. So let's start a little bit. Teresa, why don't you kind of give us your background and how you got to the job that you're currently in? So you already mentioned I'm a nutritionist. I have a bachelor's degree in animal and dairy sciences. And then for both my master's and PhD is when I focused in nutrition for the monogastric, actually both swine and poultry. And I went to school at Auburn, Mississippi State and LSU in that order. You have officially toured the SEC schools and and worked your way west. (laughs) Right, right. And I actually live a little further west now. I actually live in Texas now. Oh, just keep moving west. But still south. Um, Yes, most of my career, I was at LSU in the School of Animal Sciences as a poultry extension specialist, as well as, you know, professor, um, where my extension work 
of course, working with the industry, you focus on what your industry needs and where um, you can help them the most. So I actually did a lot of litter management, mortality management um, type of work, as well as biosecurity training, just kind of overall, as well as I worked with the 4-H and FFA programs. So I worked with all ages, all kinds of people. Um, as well as, you know, being in the department where I was able to do some research. Um, I had obviously mostly an extension appointment, so it was more field type trials. But um, towards my last years there at LSU, I was able to get back into some nutrition research and have some graduate students. And then several years ago, I decided to go to industry. And so since I've been in industry, I've been supporting probiotic and prebiotic products as a technical service manager. And then about a year and a half ago, I went to Natural Biologics, where I am now. Um, again, still supporting the same types of biotics, I guess, prebiotics, mm-hmm. probiotics, right. and now postbiotics. Um, and I, so in addition to technical services, I do coordinate our poultry research. So it's, this has been great because now I've gotten back into more deeper into research and um, development, as well as, you know, working out with the industry and technical services. So I think in, in your description there, you you covered a great spot for us to, to start our, um, our conversation in terms of all these biotics, in terms of prebiotics, probiotics, and then postbiotics. So maybe that's a good place to start if you could explain sort of what each of those targets and how they work differently in, in whatever good of whatever your species, you know, be it poultry or swan. Um, so how do those, what's the difference in those and how do they work? Okay. So prebiotics are generally the food source for the good bacteria. So prebiotics, a lot of the prebiotics, prebiotics we use in feed are coming from the yeast cell wall, like the mannan oligosaccharide or moss would be the short term for it. Um, they are relatively indigestible to the host, the poultry, and stay in the gut and serve as an excellent feed source for the good bacteria within the gut. Um, in addition, because they're made up of mannose, they are able to bind to mannose-dependent um, binding pathogens like salmonella and E. coli, and they can bind to these pathogens, prevent those pathogens from coloni- attaching to the gut lining, colonizing in the gut, and causing some issues. Um, so prebiotics, basically food for the good bacteria, as well as combined um, pathogenic organisms, some of those. Probiotics are the good bacteria. And these are names that we hear like lactobacillus and bacillus. Um, primarily in our feed, we're using a type of bacillus strain. There are plenty, there are some others out there as well, I guess, but over the years, our primary one that we've been feeding as a probiotic is a bacillus. So we're putting a good bacteria in the gut to take up space in the gut, do all the good things because those bacillus do produce um, products that can be kind of, that will be antimicrobial, um, help with some, they can produce some enzymes, help with some digestion of um, feed ingredients. So they're good by bacteria that just to contribute to the overall gut health of poultry. And the other is postbiotics, which is a newer kind of class of feed additive or um, tool we have um, for gut health. And these postbiotics are compounds produced um, by 
mostly probiotic strains or yeast strains. Um, they're kind of their end products um, and can, you know, produce, they can be some, have some enzymes in them, some amino acids, some nucleotides. So say they produce products that are good for the um, digestion, digestion, overall gut health of the poultry. So prebiotics, probiotics, postbiotics. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. So we now we know, I mean, I think everybody throws those terms around a lot. And, and unless you work in that sector, um, or you're a nutritionist, or you're, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out how to add these things in, into formulations, um, it's good to always clear that up when we're starting a conversation about that. So in terms of um, trying to sort of manage the poultry microbiome, um, it, it, it's pretty complex. Uh, so how do these, one, how do you get these to survive, like, let's say, feed manufacturing? That's, that's one battle is, you know, how are they formulated so that you can survive the feed processing? And then, you know, how do we measure, you know, the impact they're having? I think that's another thing that, that is a little difficult to quantify is, you know, we, we want this impact and we want, you know, an end result. Um, so, so how do we evaluate those? Okay, so I guess first to go back to how do they survive the process of what we do in poultry feed, pelleting, crumbling. Um, first, the prebiotics, or you know, again, I go back to the yeast. Um, by far, the majority of what we use are from Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and those products are not alive for the, most of them. There are some live yeast products, but for the most part, these prebiotics are not live. So we're not killing them <laughs> as we would go through our normal heat process. They're very, very heat stable. Um, so they, they make it through the whole process um, that we use in pelleting, crumbling, chicken feed. Um, probiotics now, we do have to be a lot more careful there because they do not withstand a lot of the heat uh, or the levels of heat we might use in our feed manufacturing. Um, but like a bacillus is a spore former. So it's the spore form that survives the heat and then is activated again with inside the poultry. Um, postbiotics, again, are not live. Um, they are compounds that were produced by um, these uh, yeast or probiotic strains. So again, they're not live and they're good um, to make it through that heat process as well. Now, as far as evaluating their effectiveness, um, obviously there's going to be many ways we can do that. And a lot of people have their own different ways of looking at it. Um, being a nutritionist and one who's done a lot of kind of feed them, weigh them <laughs> type research, um, really kind of, I like practicality and how it can all fit together. Um, so, you know, that's the first thing we start with. You know, we, we do a growth study. We look at their average daily gain, um, obviously feed intake, because um, we may need to make sure they're eating. <laughs> um, and then, of course, we, we do use those um, metrics to calculate feed conversion. And we typically do see an improvement in feed conversion by using a probiotic, prebiotic, especially because they're improving the overall gut health. Um, and, you know, just maybe reducing the pathogen load like they're supposed to do as well. So an overall improvement in health because health is definitely and especially overall health and especially gut health are tied to performance. 
we have a dysbiosis situation, an imbalance in our microbiota shifting towards more pathogenic bacteria, obviously our growth performance and health is not going to be as well or as good as it can be. So that's one measure we have to look at the effectiveness of, of these products or biotics is just growth trials. Um, where we're getting today, uh, we can also look at specific pathogens, um, whether we're having to sacrifice um, animals at the end of research trial or in live production at certain stages of growth. Um, we're able to take that digestive tract and look at the um, pathogen loads and overall microbiota within there to determine um, Obviously, our load of pathogens, what pathogens are in there, as well as on the other hand, what good bacteria or bacterial biomarkers are present. Um, so we can again, and, and again, I'm going to go back to the prebiotics just as an example. Um, if we're looking for, are they controlling salmonella and reducing the colonization, right? We can um, collect Zika and analyze those for salmonella prevalence or load, and then, or we can use uh, cloacal swabs and, and do the same thing, analyzing for salmonella load and um, prevalence. And so we can actually take measurements to see, are they reducing the pathogens? And then it, along with, you know, are we looking, are, growth performance, are we getting um, optimum growth performance through these? So in terms of things like that, like the pathogen control, are they actually like like a challenge trial, like so you have birds that are fed, you know, whatever, the prebiotic, probiotic combo or, you know, or some, a, a product, they actually get challenged with a known, say, salmonella strain. And then you look at, you know, the difference between two treatment groups. Are we talking sure, about sure. kind of a research or, you know, more kind of like field trials that we're looking at just naturally occurring salmonellas and looking at the difference between maybe all the above. It is all of the above. And I've been involved with all of the above, right? More obviously in a research setting, we can do those challenges um, with salmonella and look at um, feeding. A con you know, obviously, you keep a control to complete your experimental design and have something to compare to um, with these products you're adding into the feed. And yeah, you can do the challenge and look at the salmonella loads over a period of time or, you know, whatever your point is that's most valuable um, for whatever data you're collecting. But out in the field, we'll just or, or just um, even some research trials, just kind of an, I guess we call it a natural challenge um, using built up litter. You can just, that can be your challenge within a research situation, but definitely um, in the industry, we do that. So there's a lot of salmonella in the environment to begin with, whether it comes from the litter or unfortunately, you know, rodents, pests that come into the environment of the poultry can bring the salmonella. So, more out in the field, in the field trial work that I've done, it's been, you know, implementing a product, prebiotic, probiotic into the diet um, and looking at, at different periods of time, the salmonella load, if that's what we're evaluating, you know, prior to going on product and then different periods after. So, like I said, either way, you can, ch obviously, in research, we challenge. Um, we're looking for modes of action, De definitely demonstrating that reduction in effectiveness of the product. And then we go out into the field, um, whether it's just a field trial or actually working with a customer that's trying to evaluate the effectiveness of these types of products that they're using. And in terms of that, like all the way through to processing, like you're, you know, evaluating like carcass rinses, like you're looking that 
stuff that goes all the way to an endpoint or more kind of using this as like a, a pre-harvest um, uh, control point. Right. And it, yes, excellent question because we're always asked in live production how this is going to affect process in processing, what's going to happen. Um, so these products are in the feed, obviously. So definitely we're looking at live production and pre-harvest, right? getting that ant- bird um, and egg broiler, turkey, you know, whatever growing, getting that bird to its endpoint to go into processing as the lowest with the lowest salmonella. It could, you know, we're, we're trying to lower that. Now, once that bird leaves the farm, uh, everything changes, right? Um, they're, they're hauled. You do well, even with feed withdrawal on the farm, you know, that's a stressful time. And so some of these birds can, you know, have an increase in salmonella at that time as well. But then, you know, they feed withdrawal, they go um, transportation to the processing facility, all the factors within that processing facility. So these are really just a part or a piece of an overall salmonella control program. And again, if we're talking about the prebiotics or the yeast um, you know, type ingredients, it's just a part of it, but we want to do our part in pre-harvest to make sure um, that bird has the lowest amount of salmonella or salmonella free would be great. But we try to do that pre-harvest and, and make our contribution because it is an overall you know, production scheme from live to processing. I, I think that, um, so in terms of like trying to evaluate the microbiome and, and everything, the, the tools we have in terms of like, you know, like you said, like um, detecting their metabolites or, you know, all these like proteomics and genomics and all of these omics in terms of evaluating what is actually there and what's doing what has just evolved immensely. Um, even even the past like five years, like the the speed at which we can do it, the preciseness at which we can do it. Um, so, are those kind of new tools being used um, by you know yourself or some, you know in, in terms of evaluating um, you know what what's really changing? Um, you know, all of these products became very popular when we you know started pulling back antibiotic use, um, and so that obviously shift the microbiome when we don't use antibiotics. And then we use these products trying to shift the microbiome in a beneficial way. Um, so what's kind of the, the latest and greatest in terms of um, these high tech tools, I guess, to evaluate what's going on in the gut? Yeah, sure. And maybe I'll just back up a little bit and um, some background. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, it's relatively new. It was not until the late 1990s where uh, microbiome was really starting to be discussed. And I think more in humans than animals and it's just evolved. So yeah, it was the late 1990s, which I don't think is that long ago. <laughs> right. But in the overall, overall scheme of things, scheme it, of it, things. Is, it, is, it is, yeah, it, it is a yeah. very young science and we learn more every day. Um, uh, you know, there's so many bacteria, um, positive and negative out there. And, you know, it, it, not too long ago, it was just hard to analyze for all of them to determine what was there or not. So, you know, it's molecular biology advancements, high throughput sequencing, you know, the 16S, all of that is what's come into allowing us to look to see what is in the microbiome and 
as we identify what's in the microbiome, now we can go look through literature and um, learn more about what each of those specific bacteria uh, do, good or bad. So it, it, it is um, very new science still with that. And it took a lot of developments and knowledge and other areas besides poultry um, to get to where we are today with being able to even start um, looking at these. And you mentioned uh, antibiotics, right? Um, so we didn't exactly know what was going on when we were using antibiotics. And um, something to remember with antibiotics is they don't necessarily discriminate. You no. know, they can kill good and yeah, bad. Everybody, everybody in the pool. Right. So we didn't, we didn't have as rich or diverse uh, or abundance in the microbiome when we use antibiotics versus what we have now. Um, and I also like to say that as we've gotten away from antibiotics, every day is a new day. Every day is new territory because we've gotten another day uh, or however we look at it, another month, another year, further away from um, the use of antibiotics in a lot of our poultry. So we're learning more all the time. Um, something that we do is um, we use cloacal swabs and have those sequenced to determine what bacteria are within that poultry. And um, we would use our, we have a postbiotic product that we um, have available for the commercial industry to go along with this sampling or microbiota um, kind of analysis, whatever you want, however you want to think of it. Um, so we would go in and do a sampling, swabbing, have it, have all those um, swabs sequenced, determine what's there, good and bad. And then we have an artificial intelligence platform. We have a partner that has this artificial intelligence platform to, you know, obviously identify these good and bad bacteria and determine um, where we should go um, if we see a lot of bad names kind of show up. Um, and we can feed this postbiotic and then look at it over time periods to see are we shifting that bacteria to be more positive, less chance of a dysbiosis situation. Um, and with this product, um, it's a kind of a core component to it. And then we can customize it with different additives we have um, that kind of fit it together based on what we would find in an initial microbiome analysis, you know, that we need to see more of certain good bacteria, less of our good bacteria, less of some of the bad ones. Um, and we can uh, customize this product over time, you know, and just kind of periodically a couple times a year, um, doing a swab throughout a complex that would be on the product and uh, make sure we're shifting the, bio the microbiome good, making it more rich, more diverse, and uh, doing that over time. It's um, kind of the the, what a tool we have. We talked about some, you know, evaluations in research and in, in the field and field studies. Um, this is one that we actually do. We've been doing in research, of course, to get our modes of action and um, gather data, build the database. But, you know, it's definitely one we take to the field and want to take to the field to help um, producers and companies that produce broilers, turkeys. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's the, 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 the path that we're headed on is just, is just the data is there. It, it's been a matter of that. We don't really have the test, like evaluating that test, like the use of artificial intelligence, like that's, you know, crazy to look at, you know, what's in chicken poop, <laughs> you know, like that's really what it is, is we're trying to evaluate, you know, what all those, you know, good and bad bacteria. Um, so in terms of like 
generating um, that data and, and learning what these modes of actions. I think that's the other p- piece that's always like kind of questioning for a lot of people is like, okay, I, I understand putting the good bacteria in there is good. Um, you know, but, but how do we like kind of focus down on, okay, this is actually doing this specific mode of action. Um, I think that's a, a big question for a lot of people before they want to add these products in is like, okay, how is this working? Does it have any negative? Like, how do you get that, you know, sort of information and into the hands of decision makers? Okay. Well, I can kind of, I have an excellent example of a research trial we did that we have been sharing. Of course, we try to publish and, um, you know, share our data with potential customers as well. Um, A recent research trial we did was in broilers, um, zero to 21 days of age, and it was a coccidiosis challenge trial. So we grew the you know, chicks for 14 days. We gave them a 10x dose of a coxy vaccine as their challenge. And then we let them go for seven more days. And we did the microbiome uh, analysis at the end of that 21 total days or seven days after the challenge. And um, of course, we had our postbiotic product, um, which is what we were interested in, <laughs> making sure it's doing what it could do. Um, and of course, you know, the controls, we had a not challenge control, a challenge control. And then we also compared to a coccidiostat, popular coccidiostat on the market. Um, and what we found was that, of course, the coccidia, we also did oocyst counts, right? Um, gross performance, oocyst counts, Um we found that the coccidiostat did do its job or confirmed that, right, in reducing the oocyst counts. Um, unfortunately, but it's not a mode of the mode of action for these postbiotics. The postbiotic treatment group actually had the highest oocyst counts. But when we looked at growth performance, we had similar feed conversion ratio um, between the group, treatment group fed the coccidiostat and that fed the um, postbiotic and those challenged controls did not have similar feed conversion. Um, so when we go to look at the microbiome, we saw that one of the biomarkers that is associated with feed conversion ratio was more abundant in the group fed the postbiotic. So even though the mode of action of the postbiotic was not to reduce oocyst count, it does shift microbiome or allow um, bacterial um, biomarkers to show up that are related to performance and improving performance. So overall, we got the similar growth performance or feed conversion ratio, and, as well as gains, but feed conversion ratio. So we had that specific example or specific biomarker show up there and you could use that to explain um, the sa- the similarities we were able to get in feed conversion ratio. And that was just a 21-day study. So we don't know what would happen after that yet. Um, but, you know, we do have plans to carry that out at least into a, you know, 42-day grow out or, you know, more longer study. We just have not been able to do that yet. Okay. And, and in terms of like, I guess, just thinking my, you know, physiology brain. So if you're, you know, Coccidia species can be fairly invasive. Um, so if the if the two groups are you know fairly similar and actually you saw an improved feed conversion with your postbiotic product, are the you know 
sort of feeding the good bacteria, helping to to offer almost like a protective barrier from the cox coccidia sort of invading or it, like any idea. I understand you're detecting a biomarker, but in terms of like a on a microscopic scale, um, are you looking at that? Like in terms of like, okay, what's it what's it really doing here? Are are the bacteria you know, binding the attachment sites for the coccidia? Um, are we just shifting all that so then the protozoa aren't able to attach? You know, any suggestion, I guess, maybe on how that's working on that level? Sure. I, I don't have a definite answer. Right. Um, <laughs> but um, just in some of my experience in the past and, you know, some research um, literature, um, there could be something with some of these yeast products, prebiotics with protozoa and preventing protozoal pro- problems. Um, a, a, an example probably that's more documented would be cryptosporidium and calves um, showing, you know, the some of the prebiotic yeast components can help prevent attachment of the crypto. So in that, I guess I'm hoping to translate, um, not though I have not shown that definite line, into some of poultry, like blackhead. Right. Um, oh, wouldn't that be great if we could stop yeah. blackhead? Yeah. We don't yeah, have and, a solution and, for that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, we don't. We don't. We're all working there. And actually, we've also been looking at um, turkey poult challenge studies with histomonas with our, um, yeah, yeast products as well as the um, postbiotic. And actually, um, we're going to repeat it, but we did see a reduction in transmission of the blackhead. Um, so anyway, so going to the coxie is where we started. Um, I've seen some literature where um, like Tanella has been, we've seen some reduction in that um, by feeding these products. You know, these, these um, prebiotics, you know, are not digestible. They make it to the Sika. We know they're working in the Sika, which is where Tanella is, which is where Salmonella is. So we kind of have that confirmed. Um, so I think there's plenty of room for these in a overall program for coxie control. Um, it's not probably the only thing we're going to be able to use, but I think they are part of a program um, for coxie control. You know, that, like I said, there is some evidence with some protozoa that they, you know, are effectiveness at preventing the harmfulness of those. So it's part of a program and um, something we definitely can explore more in the future. Yeah, I think that there, you know, I think that we we do have to sort of figure out how to piece together um, a lot of these these products. Um, you know, as as we keep getting things, you know, removed from the market or or for marketing reasons, things get taken away. It's it's you know we have we have to figure out what what works um, and what combination. Um, you know, yeah. And I, and I think there's no, there's no one product that necessarily fits the bill and is like, here, just use this and it'll take care of everything. Right. So, right. Yeah. We might've had that with antibiotics and now we have all of these different feed additives that kind of go in, you know, there's not one replacement. Sure. Um, another example I have is, you know, we've kind of been looking at some combinations, prebiotics, probiotics, not just us, but there's a lot in the literature. Um, we use a, a prebiotic, probiotic, and a saponin product, which saponins are effective against protozoa. Um, the combination of those three together, um, we saw some positive um, 
biomarkers increase in abundance when we had the three together, as opposed to having them um, just the probiotic prebiotic together. When we added that saponin, we saw some advantages there as well. So again, a whole nother category of compound <laughs> that we can, we need to look at and again, could fit into the big overall program. Yeah. I, I think that's going to be our next steps is, is figuring out, you know, how, how to, you know, almost puzzle piece or, you know, however, build these products to, you know, address things like blackhead or, you know, like to me, Campylobacter is a prime example. Like we really don't have great control measures for Campy. Is there a product out there? Maybe. Like maybe it's, you know, pot layering some of these things on top of each other. Um, you know, eventually, like we just don't really have great, things for for that like everybody does a lot of research on salmonella but campylobacter's you know just still sitting out there we still have a performance standard so you know maybe there's an answer in some of these products sure i think there is i think there's um, limited data but there is some data and looking at the yeast components to reduce campy as well Um, there's been some positive data there as well but sure (laughs) um right it's um not necessarily going to hurt the poultry. Oh, so, you know, where does it fit we'll in get with more that? But yeah, yeah, we'll have to keep looking for the biomarkers that maybe can reduce the campy <laughs> or, you know, those specific Excellent. probiotic strains that can outcompete. And, and I think another uh, another area where, where a lot of people focus on this is control of, you know, sort of the clostridial uh, types of infections in terms of necrotic and in, in terms of later on potentially dermatitis. Um, so how, how does that fit in, in terms of, you know, if we promote the good bacteria, how does that control clostridial populations? Cause that's an, another sort of, um, disease state that we try to minimize with these types of products. Sure. Sure. Again, it's not, we can't, we don't have one tool that we can use to replace what had been used in the past. However, a lot of the bacillus strains are very inhibitory for clostridium perfringens. You know, they, they can prevent the growth, you know, reduce the clostridium perfringens. So I've, I've seen a lot of the bacillus strains. When you, you feed that and you measure the clostridium perfringens, you, know, you see a lot of reduction there. They can, um, again, be a part of the whole program and helping to reduce that um, necrotic. So then I kind of have one last sort of area to sort of, you know, cover in the conversation to pick your brain on, just so that that folks understand, at what time point can you impact the microbiome? Um, You know, do you you feed these products like at a a certain age? Um, Is it when the disease challenge is highest? Do you have to get in there at the very beginning? Um, sort of how how do we make impacts um, on on the microbiome? Okay, so first we have to remember the microbiome is very variable. It's dynamic. It, it, it's never. I don't think it's ever really constant uh, in a constant state. It changes. Um, it can change daily based on what comes into the environment. You know, it can change weekly. It changes with um, phase feeding. You know, changes with each phase. Um, so age affects or, or uh, yeah, it affects the microbiome. We tend to see different trends in bacteria increase or decrease as a bird ages. Um, but, you know, again, that can be to 
environment, feed changes. So it's something that changes all the time. Um, So we, and again, we need to be thinking we're using a lot of these biotics uh, as preventative means of controlling something. So you definitely have to get them in from the beginning. You know, there's um, products that can be used in the hatchery, um, whether you spray it on the chick itself, spray it on the egg shell, just to get uh, a good bacteria kind of available there for that chick um, or poult and help them get off to the best start. Um, because when they get to, when they leave the hatchery, well, first of all, the hatchery right. compared to um, if That's they had contact with an adult female, <laughs> you know, if they had c- contact with the parent, you know, that parent would help them establish their microbiota. They don't have that. So unfortunately, no, catch them in a, a building, <laughs> not underneath the hen. Exactly. And in those buildings, it's kind of like a hospital example. The worst survive, no matter what we do. <laughs> I've bad, even seen the bad hatcheries bugs are super bad. <laughs> I, I've seen hatcheries go in and do a really deep clean and disinfection. The next hatch is just one of the worst, um, highest levels of E. coli. Um, so we have to use these products as soon as possible. Um, we get them through, <laughs> um, get them hatched. You know, get them to the farm. They come in contact with that used litter hopefully has been treated to reduce pass, reduce the pathogen loads. But um, still, that litter is kind of its first probiotic, good or bad. Um, so, yeah, we need to get these into the bird, just, you know, whether it's spraying on a hatchery, using as a water treatment at the farm right away, and because they're not going to, you know, eat enough right there no. at the beginning either. Yeah. Um, Their intake and then, is so limited. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, hatchery water can help get a good lactobacillus establishment there in the gut. Um, And then, you know, like I said, they're kind of they're preventative measures for the most part. Um, So the entire life cycle is when they're, they're beneficial, you know, to help. You know, you have times when you they're under stress. So you have shedding of these pathogens. Um, So just kind of and. You know, when we know, if we know there's going, they're undergoing a stress or, you know, maybe it's just a diet change, which can be stressful to them. Maybe we increase or provide extra probiotic in the water, another water treatment. Or, you know, we know a history of when a certain farm or group of farms breaks with necrotic. Okay, prior to that, um, we increase the probiotic um, or, again, can go in the water system. So, um, there's all kinds of options. <laughs> um, but again, you know, the entire life cycle of that bird, it, it, these have a role and can play, you know, be a benefit. Maybe it's preventative. We would never know if we didn't have that in there. You know, maybe the birds could perform the same. But if they undercome, if they come under that challenge, you have that um, p- protection um, there within the bird to hopefully get them through it, overcome it, and maybe the producer won't even know there was a problem. That That would be be the ideal world. (laughs) That would be great if we could get it that fine-tuned to, you know, almost a a personalized treatment program per farm um, because it's so specific. Um, I think that's a that was a perfect spot to kind of to wrap up our conversation focused on the microbiome today. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. 
AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Your partner for improving animal performance. Berg and Schmidt. Your partner in improving animal performance. Berg and Schmidt. They believe the following additives are necessary in the poultry dietary. Functional lipids for an efficient dietary energy management. Phospholipids for emulsification, achieving a better nutrient intake. MCTs to provide energy and modulate the microflora within the intestines and enzymes for elevated use of fibrous materials and byproducts. So I'll ask just kind of an off question. Um, what advice would you give people, you know, that are just starting like on a similar path um, in the nutrition world or, you know, supporting products like what you uh, support? One of the things we learn to do as students is we learn how to learn. <laughs> so never stop learning. Um, education, I, you know, I, I was an educator. I guess I still consider myself an educator. You, you still so, are. Tech service is a lot of education. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, take advantage of that education, never stop learning and, you know, make as many connections as possible. Obviously, with the faculty, a graduate student learns, you know, has builds relationship with their major professor and the other faculty within a department that they're working in, um, as well as other graduate students. You know, we learn from each other. So, you know, just and then take advantage of scientific meetings. Obviously, that's where there's a lot of knowledge um, shared. Um, you know, you'll see all kinds of data shared. So, you know, kind of look at it, learn from it and take those opportunities, you know, when you're at a scientific meeting to meet um, people that, you know, you're reading their research and try and have conversations with them and, you know, just make a connection there. Um, it's the poultry industry is a big industry, but it's also small it's as well. Very small we tend, world. To, <laughs> tend to know each other. Right. Um, so, you know, I just say just take advantage of all the educational opportunities you can and never stop learning because there's changing. You know, we've been talking about a newer, newer type science here today that we don't we know some about, but I'm sure there's a lot we don't know. Yet. Changing every I feel like every week I learn something new in this this whole arena of gut health and the microbiome, like even though like my, like, you know, I consider myself like a diagnostician, like I, I, you know, do disease, but like, that's a big part of it. So it's, you know, I, I lifelong learning, gr great, uh, great um, way to end. And uh, we appreciate your time today, Teresa. And thanks for being a, our guest today on the Poultry Podcast Show.